0: So I have the tiny little topic of worship today. Um, It was kind of daunting preparing a lecture on worship. It's such a huge topic, Um, but I feel like last week led perfectly into this week, um, as last week we talked about the Psalms and praise and prayers of adoration to God, which of course is a form of worship. Um, And we talked about David last week and how when David was anointed as king to when he actually became king was a period of time where he was waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. And during that time, he praised God. He fixed his eyes on God instead of his circumstances. And so I think that leads really well into our topic today of worship. And we're going to be looking once again at David, but this is now once that promise has been fulfilled, he's king. This is how he is confronting Saul's legacy in our passage. Um, And so We're going to start in Chronicles and look at that passage, but then we're going to move from there and focus more just on worship as a whole and what worship is and what it looks like. And so before we jump in, would you please pray with me? Father God, you are holy. Please open our eyes in wonder, as the song said today. Help us to be in wonder of you, Lord. As we talk today about worship, Lord, would you please just um, remind us of who you are? God, as I feel especially tired today, would you give me the energy? And Lord, would you just speak here today, Lord? I just give you this morning. May it be honoring and pleasing to you. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. All right. So, first of all, um, we looked at 1st Chronicles 15:25 through 16:36 this week. And the book of Chronicles as a whole shows what makes King David different than his predecessor Saul. And I'm going to move back a little bit to chapter 13. And so in chapter 13, we saw David confronting Saul's legacy. And 1 Chronicles 13.3 says, "'Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul.'" So the biggest mistake of Saul is that he did not inquire of the Lord. And David is going to represent a fundamental shift as he deals with and learns from Saul's legacy. So I'm just going to read the first part of our passage today, uh, chapter 15, verses 25 through 29. It says, So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and as were the musicians, and Cananiah who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod, so all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, and with the sounding of rams, horns, and trumpets, and of cymbals, and the playing of lyres and harps. This is quite the party, isn't it? Um, So the Ark in these verses, you might have noticed, was repeatedly called the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, because the Ark of God means the Covenant of God. And so when we talk about the Covenant, that brings us back to Mount Sinai. So the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and God brought them out, and then they came to Mount Sinai, where Moses ascended the mountain and received the word and law of God. This is where he received the Ten Commandments. And those stone tablets, along with other sacred objects, were placed inside this ark, this beautifully decorated gold box, which was a reminder of who they are and of what really matters. It was a reminder of where they came from and how. The ark, then, is a reminder to the Israelites that they owe their very existence to God. He is Yahweh, the one who came to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt and made them his own through this great encounter on Mount Sinai. This is where he decreed that he would be their God and they would be his people. That was his covenant. The covenant of God also means the grace of God. This is the symbol of God's changeless grace in the midst of their ever-changing circumstances. And when they wandered in the wilderness, the tent in which the ark was housed was to lie at the center of the people, symbolizing that God is their center. The ark was their portable Sinai, reminding them of what God did for them wherever they went. But now we come to David's time, and the focus has been shifted. The ark has not been at the center. It has not even been inquired of during Saul's reign. And this is what David aims to fix in the chapters we come to today. So back in Samuel and Kings, the ark was taken into battle as a talisman and was captured by the Philistines. And as one commentator put it, it passed from one Philistine city to another like a hot potato leaving burnt fingers wherever it went. When at last it returned to its homeland, it was placed in the home of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim, however you say that city, um, which is where it's been for 20 years. And so that's where it is in chapter 13. And in the passage preceding ours, however, we see that the ark is, um, they're moving it in this procession, and it's like a carnival. It's this huge party, and um, the event is not just important, it is also exciting. However, we also see the power of the holiness of God in the passage preceding ours. We see David learn that God needs to be approached with an understanding of his holiness as Uzzah reaches his hand out to study the ark and is struck down by the Lord. This event is, if you've heard this story, probably a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit confusing, and it was for David as well. David was angry by this. He was confused by this. What a way to stop a carnival than to strike him down immediately. What an effective way to quench the joy of this occasion. However important and exciting the ark is, it, there's also something perilous about it. <clears throat> but as David thinks about this as he ponders this, and it stays for three months in the house of Obed-Edom, where it is in our passage. As he thinks about this, he realizes that he made the one mistake that he was aiming not to make. He did not inquire of the Lord about how to bring the ark. He missed the fact that the Lord had already given them a prescribed way to bring the ark, a prescribed way to approach him. God had provided a way to protect his people from himself. So in the Old Testament, God provided poles for them to carry the ark so that he could be in the presence of his people. In the New Testament, God provides a cross so that he could be in the presence of his people. This is a picture of God's grace. And so it is then, when David follows the prescribed way to carry the ark after learning about how it is to encounter God's holiness, it is then that our passage begins today. So there has been quite buildup to this moment when they're finally bringing the ark. And so this is, again, the people are filled with excitement and joy as they once again aim to put God at their center. But we have this little verse right after here in 1 Chronicles where it says, And the Ark of the Covenant, as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Did anybody relate with Michael this week when you see someone worshiping a little different than you do, um, being a little bit confused by that, maybe a little bit judgmental? Um, And this is where we read of Michael's scorn at David's actions, but I think it's interesting that she's not called Michael David's wife. She's called Michael the daughter of Saul. Saul. I think that this is showing, the author is doing this intentionally to show that she is like a representative of the house of Saul, who is still not quite in tune with the mind of God, where David, in contrast, is giving the ark the attention that it deserves. So here we have Israel's heart restored, and what does that look like? It looks first and foremost like dependence on God as they inquire of him. It looks like obedience to God as they obey and follow the ways that God had provided for them to approach him, the instructions he gave to protect the people from himself. And finally, it looks like exuberance for God. David bursts into this beautiful song of praise, ready to look a fool. He praises God with all his might, and that is our focus today, worship. David worships because he is so exuberant and excited to bring God back to their center. David worships because he is thankful that the God of the covenant is faithful, gracious, and he's good. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were numerous, more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So David worships God because God chose them simply because he loves them. And that is the truth that the ark enshrines. And so we're going to continue to look At worship. And like I said, for the remainder of this lecture, I'm not going to focus on just this passage anymore. Um, You can discuss it more in your groups, but instead I'm just going to focus on worship as a whole, asking three questions. What is worship? Why do we worship? And finally, how do we worship? So the first question is, what is worship? And as you can imagine, when I looked up a definition of worship, I got a lot of different definitions. And so I'm just going to highlight a few that I particularly liked, and then we're going to look a little closer at each of them. So the first one is that worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your whole being. Secondly, worship is worth Acknowledging the worth and worthiness of the one who is worshiped. Worship touches the very center of human beings. Human beings on their knees in worship are at their most noblest and most human. Worship is, as David said, "O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together." And finally, worship is surrender. So, first of all, worship is ascribing ultimate value. Worship engages your mind, your will, and your emotions. But if you go through a ritual without ever experiencing in your inner being a ravishing sense of beauty and joy, then it is not worship. If it doesn't truly change your life patterns and the way you live, It is not truly worship. So worship is the act of assigning ultimate value. Take an inventory of the excellencies of God, reflecting upon them, until there is an explosion in your life. That is worship. And worship might start simply in the mind. As we rationally inventory who God is, but then it dawns upon you, the value of who he is, and the beauty of who he is. And that is when it becomes true worship. So secondly, worship is worth So I like how N.T. Wright said it. He says the English word worship comes from the word worthy. And here is one of its classic expressions. Worship means acknowledging the worth and worthiness of the one who is worshiped. It means gladly recognizing and celebrating the fact that God is who he is and does what he does. And worship also is daily worship. It's meant to be daily worship because it touches the very center of who we are as human beings. In Daniel chapter 8, when their daily worship is threatened and taken away, it is devastating and horrific to them. How can you live day by day without daily worship, they ask? Because it is daily worship in response to our daily grace. You see, every day we want to worship God because every day he gives us grace. Without worship, John Stott says, you shrink. A non-worshiping soul is a shrunken soul. We grow into the fullness of our humanity. When we learn to worship God through Christ. So that is why we have designed the study to be done over five days because we're hoping that each of us will be daily in worship because every day we receive grace. So every day we worship. And so, as the psalmist says, every day I will give thanks, every day I will praise your name. And worship is also the act of magnifying God. So worship says, I want to see more of you, Lord. And then it looks closer, like with a magnifying glass. I like how Max Lucado says it. He says, worship is the act of magnifying God, enlarging our vision of him because as we draw near, he seems larger. And isn't that what we need? a big view of God. Because don't we have big problems, big worries, and big questions? Of course we do. Hence, we need a big view of God. And worship offers that. How can we sing holy, 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 and not have our vision expanded? So it's when we magnify God in worship that we can see our problems, our worries, our fears all come into perspective in light of our big, big God. So that is our definition of worship. That is what is worship. And now we move on to the second question, why do we worship? Tim Keller says that we worship God because we are already worshiping something. You're already ascribing ultimate value to something. Your life is already controlled and oriented around whatever it is that you ascribe ultimate value to. So if we're already worshiping something, shouldn't we worship the creator of the universe? You see, the world is not divided between those who worship and those who don't. It's divided between those who worship things that will distort your life and around those who worship the only proper one who is worthy of the worship of your soul. The very essence of worship is recognizing that your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. And then true worship is recognizing where that is and then transferring your ultimate value from wherever it's at to God, because that is when worship Will change your life. Now, here's the thing one of the definitions of worship was worship is surrender. And I think the main thing that gets in the way of our being able to fully surrender to God is fear. And last week, when Betsy taught, she said that what we love is what we are. And our fear and anxiety raise when what we love is threatened. Love for God is what gives ultimate rest, because God will never let us down. We tend to forget that we're all worshiping something, whether it be a person, a relationship, power, money, a job, anything else. The thing that we worship tends to completely control us. We become dependent upon it and terribly afraid of losing it. It's only when we are able to see that God's love is more pleasing that we will truly find rest. Tim Keller says that if we struggle with anxiety, despondency, nervousness, nothing less than reassigning the ultimate value of your life from where it is to God will make you infallibly happy. This is what worship is, and this is why we worship. Because it is the ultimate need of our heart and our life. And in praising him, we pull our heart off of those things that tend to distort our life and put them onto the only one who can give us true rest. And this is why we need it to be daily worship. Because I think, for me, I need to do this every single day. Every single day, I need to put my eyes back on the Lord, pull it off of wherever it's gone, and put it back onto the Lord. Because I find myself waking up in fear at times, or afraid of losing things in my life that I value so much— And so I need to pull my ultimate value from those things and put it back on God. That's why we need daily worship, because that is what worship does for us. Because then our life will become so pervaded by worship that every aspect of our day becomes an act of worship. Our work becomes worship. Everything we do becomes an offering of praise to God. Max Lucado says, worship adjusts us. It lowers the chin of the haughty and straightens the back of the burdened. It bows the knees, singing to him our praise. It opens our hearts, offering to him our uniqueness. Worship properly positions the worshiper. And oh, how we need it. We walk through this life so bent out of shape. So that is why we worship. And finally, I come to the last question. How do we worship? In Tim Keller's sermon on worship, he says that we worship in, in well, the way we worship well is in community, in truth, and in spirit. We worship in community because corporate worship is the real transforming experience. We need each other. Our individual worship prepares us for our corporate worship, which is the way that we learn who God truly is. And that is why I love what we do here on Wednesdays. I love when we sit around the table and we each share what we saw of God that week. Because as I get to hear what each person saw of God, I myself get a bigger picture of the God who I worship. And secondly, we worship in truth. So we worship while being submitted to Scripture as the self-revelation of God. And that is why we need to be in our Bibles. That is why we need to read the Scripture, because as we read, we get a better picture of the God we worship. We get the self-revelation of who He is. And finally, we worship in the Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit who makes us aware of the presence of God. So how do we worship? And especially, how do we worship God daily? Because it's so easy for this to grow stale. John Stott says that monotonous routine is a trial for the flesh. We're not invited, however, to go through some set formula like a parrot— But instead, our worship can be fresh every day because God's mercies are new to us every day. Fresh grace brings about fresh worship. And so each day, ask the Holy Spirit to help you grasp with fresh wonder the greatness and graciousness of our God. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, addresses worship as well. He notes that there are many forms of praise in the Bible, such as confessing, shouting, singing, standing in honor, kneeling, dancing, making a joyful noise, playing musical instruments, raising your hands, and more. And hopefully you got to see those a little bit last week. But the best style of worship— is the one that authentically represents your love for God based on the personality that God gave you. Because if God intentionally made us all different, why should everyone be expected to love God in the same way? And this is something that I have wrestled with personally many times as I want to fit everyone into the way that I experience God. And my husband and I experience God very differently. While he approaches God often more intellectually, I often approach God more emotionally. And I've learned to see that there are beauties in these differences. Neither way is better. They're both unique to who we are. And that's why I love that we're trying out all different ways of studying. I kind of like the study. I don't know if you can tell. I might be a little bit biased, but um, (laughs) we're trying out all these different ways because some of them are going to stick with you, some of them are going to be more meaningful, and others may not be. Personally, I like to switch it up all the time because otherwise I would get kind of bored. But it's all about our searching for God, our worshiping God, our looking for God, our seeing who He is, our experiencing Him, whatever that looks like. For you, According to Rick Warren, the most common mistake that Christians make in worship today is that they seek an experience rather than seeking God. They look for a feeling, and if it happens, they conclude, well, I've worshipped. And this can be a real struggle when we go through those periods in our life where we feel distant from God. We've all gone through them. No matter what we do, we feel some sort of distance, and we think there's something wrong with us, because no matter what we do, we're stuck in this dry spell, whatever it is. However, this is a normal part of the testing of our maturity and our friendship with God. It's part of the development of our faith. And if you're in one of those dry spells right now, I encourage you to just continue to press in. Continue in worship. And if worship simply begins in your mind as you list out the truths you know about God, keep with it until those truths start to transform you and you start to see his beauty fresh again and feel his presence fresh again. I know I went through one of those dry spells a few years ago and I was kind of stuck in a rut with my Bible study. I felt like I had to do my devotions because I had to check that off of my list. And you can probably guess, I'm a very checklist type of person. (laughs) And so I was checking it off of my list, but I wasn't feeling like it was transforming me. I wasn't feeling God's presence like I sometimes do. I was feeling distant. I was struggling. And somebody I knew and trusted just encouraged me to completely switch up what I was doing. Let go of the checklist and just start listening to worship music. And then maybe start reading reading a psalm or something like that, and all of a sudden it all became fresh to me again. And so if you're stuck in one of those dry spells where you're feeling distant, maybe just switch up what you're doing because we just experience God in new and fresh ways because his mercies are new every day. But I will tell you now, be encouraged because he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. You can trust that and continue in worship. So concluding, um, this is a whole lot of stuff, so how can I conclude all of this? But first of all, we saw David, who recognized that God had to be at the center of their lives because they owed their very existence to him. And it was that act of bringing God back to the center that drew him into this exuberant worship. And what is worship? Worship is the process of recognizing who God is, drawing near to him, shifting our ultimate value from the things of this life to him, and then surrendering ourselves to him because it's then that we truly find rest. And why do we worship? We worship God because we all worship something. And he is the only one who will not let us down. And how do we worship? In community, in truth, and in the spirit, and through whatever means that you truly experience him. And so I have a few application questions, and I would encourage you as you go back to your groups to really take these questions and form some sort of application from this. How can we live this out? How do we want to practice daily worship? And hold each other accountable for that. These questions are just meant to lead you in that direction. So first of all, my question is, what are your priorities? That is the question that kept coming up to me as I did this lesson. You see, God was so holy that when Uzzah stretched out his hand to just steady the ark, he was struck down. In order to approach God, they had all these rules, regulations, and sacrifice because he is a holy God. And now, because of the cross, we can approach God freely. And yet, we choose not to. So often, we choose not to. And so I kept asking myself this week, do I start each day recognizing that I owe my very existence to God. Do I put him first? And secondly, what do you ascribe ultimate value to? Where is your ultimate value lying? If it's not on God, then where is it? And this is why we need daily worship. We need daily to pull our ultimate value off of wherever it is and put it back on God over and over again, because he is the one we should be worshiping. And a great test to our worship is this final question, do we live in fear or in rest? Because if we're living in fear, then we are holding tight to the things of this world and are terribly afraid of losing them. If we live in fear, we want control. But if we release all we are and all we have to God, it is then that we truly find rest. If he is who we ascribe our ultimate value to, we can rest because he will never let us down. So as I thought about how to conclude this lesson that has so much in it, I was driving and this song came on the radio and I was just like, Thank you, Lord. This is the perfect ending to today because it sums up like everything that I was hoping you'd get out of today. Because as we worship, we come to know and trust the truth that God doesn't need us, but he wants us and he loves us. And that truth frees us to open our hands up and surrender and give him control. And worship is this process of allowing the world to lose its grip on us. And so today we close with the song called Control by 10th Avenue North. Let's thank you. Yeah, that was real live footage of our pastor Tim, and no, I'm just kidding. That's what I thought the whole time. All right. Let's um let's close in prayer. Father, God, we worship you today, Lord, because you are the God who loves us. You don't need us, but you want us, Lord. Help us to leave here today in awe of that truth. I pray that you would go with us in our groups, Lord, as we corporately worship you and get pictures, a better picture of who you are and how big you are so that all of the worries and fears of our life, Lord, would pale in comparison to the greatness of who you are. Lord, we love and praise you. In your name I pray, amen.